Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Andrew Payne. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. It is indeed. And our paths across many a time, almost monthly at the moment, because we've been in a month monthly mastermind ever since last October, which is when we first met. That's right. At that uh, speaker factor competition, which neither of us won, but we weren't bitter about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And and to be fair, you know, we have really embraced that whole competition in terms of what it's given us because we've formed a mastermind with there's pretty much eight regulars out of the, the 13, 14 that entered. So the eight of us meet every month and we talk about our speaker journey. So where are you on your speaker journey? What is it you're doing at the moment? Well, I guess I'm wearing probably four hats at the moment, two of which are speaking and two of which are sort of, well, they are speaking, but not in a speaking way, if that makes any sense. So my non-speaking hats is uh, I'm a dad to four. I've got a teenage daughter and three boys under eight. So that means, you know, I'm a fashion consultant, a war zone reporter, a triage nurse, um, a, a general clown, a cook and, and, and many other things. Uh, negotiate uh, high pressure negotiator um i also uh, i'm very involved with a, a charity that works in one of the most uh, deprived areas in birmingham and uh, we do like food outreach we supply free furniture for people when they move from hostel accommodation to tenancy and we do other things in the community we've done something really cool actually which i absolutely love so we took over a lad what was a lad brooks betting shop and turned it into a community centre. And we've now got girl guides meeting there. We've got a local church there. We're doing money mentoring. We're doing a job club. We've got breastfeeding support there, all in this space that was once a Ladbrokes betting shop. And that makes me feel so happy. Um, so that's kind of my second hat, I suppose. And then the other two speaking hats, as, as, it, as it were. Um, so I talk a lot um, about domestic violence and my own experiences of domestic violence in, in a former marriage um, we we know that, that men are also the victims of domestic abuse. I think generally the perception is that the overwhelming majority of victims are in fact female, which is actually quite misleading. And so uh, when I talk about domestic violence, yes, it's about my experiences. Why did I stay? The usual questions, I suppose, that you want to ask. Uh, but it's also a bit about the, the broader face of domestic abuse, parents abused by their own children, which is uh, rapidly growing phenomenon at the moment and one that's not very talked about. Um, I talk about gender unity as well. Um, there's a lot of very divisive uh, gender rhetoric around at the moment, which, which isn't helpful. Um, and then my kind of, the other speaking hat is I talk uh, around leadership, specifically productivity. So over the next few weeks, I'm delivering uh, to varied uh, associations, institute, like Institute Directors, Federation of Small Businesses, on things around burnout, um, procrastination, personal performance, critical decision making. So I guess th those are my four hats, which which I juggle to the best of my ability. 
and uh, which keep me very busy. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. Sometimes I feel like I'm in control. And then sometimes when it's locked down and the kids are at home, then I am out of control without a question. So with the hats, where should we start? Which hat would you like to don first? Um, where, where would you like to start? You tell, which hat do you think your audience would most like to hear about, Amy? Well, we're talking about why you do what you do. We're talking about the focus on why. Yeah. And it, all of these obviously have a huge focus yeah. of why you're doing what they're doing with I them. Think, they're, not, they're not flippant hats yeah. that you're switching between. Yeah. You know, but so much of it starts, I suppose, you know, the person I am today is quite shaped by, by my experiences of domestic violence. Um, I, I don't see myself particularly as a victim. I, I'm blissfully remarried today. So when I talk about domestic violence, I can talk about it in quite a chipper way, I suppose, because I have come through the other side. But when I think about why I do what I do, uh, so much of what I've learned um, ha has come through that. So, you know, some people will say, oh, well, you know, how does a, an intelligent person fall into an abusive relationship? Uh, surely they, they were conned. You know, the, the abuser sort of led them up the garden path, was, was, was absolutely lovely. And then just when they got their victim where they want, then they turned often after the wedding day or whatever it is. But for me, it wasn't like that. You know, my, my now ex-wife was at the beginning as she was at the end. She was always violent and abusive. But sort of as I came out of that relationship, I realized that one of the things that the one of the reasons I fell into that was I had no real sense of boundaries or, or who I was. I, I definitely was a people pleaser. Um, I definitely uh, always believe women to be sort of the fairer, kinder gender, probably had them on a pedestal as well. And all of that together meant that I sort of, when I met my ex-wife and, and it was like quite crazy from the beginning and that suicide attempts and amazing stories, which which I believed at the time of, of abuse as a, as a child and things like that, I, I just wanted to help her. And, and as a young man, I mean, today I might think, mm, you know, the, 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 there might be some red flags here for me. Um, as this is all kicking off. But back then I just wanted to help her and I had no sense of, of boundaries. So pretty quickly I was in this relationship where, you know, the violence was, was, wasn't every day, but it was pretty bad when it happened. You know, the, I stabbed with a pencil, candle slick, slammed over her head, which is very Agatha Christie kind of a moment, I suppose. Um, and, and a lot of, when I say sort of shouting and screaming, you know, real nose to nose stuff, and threats and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's also the emotional stuff that takes place behind that and the manipulation, uh, which, which is very common. Um, but I, in, in some ways I allowed myself to sink into that because I was this people pleaser. And so coming out of that, my, my, I realized, look, I, I know I need to get tougher, but I still want to be a nice person. Uh, and I really felt actually, you know, what's lacking here are boundaries but how do you create boundaries if you don't even have boundaries and, and you know there's all there's an awful lot out there about the importance of boundaries but nothing about how to create them so i made up my own sort of kind of model for how to create boundaries and it worked really well for myself and i started to share that um through the work that i was doing so my, my passion i suppose for talking about domestic violence my passion for leadership, my passion for standing up for people moving out of hostel accommodation, moving to Tennessee, a lot of that is shaped really by coming out of that relationship. You know, I lost everything when when I came out of that relationship. The, the difference between me, I suppose, and an alcoholic is that I had a loving family to help me pick up the pieces. Um, so 
I, I had I had something, um, but you know I, I lost my house, my my business, because um, my my when the marriage ended, it, it, it coincided with the recession at the time. Uh, as with often happens with abusive relationships, I didn't see a lot of my kids. I had to really fight hard for that in the family courts. And I was in such a low place, but seeing, experiencing my family standing by me and, and, and really kind of rebuilding has given me a passion for people that are disadvantaged. So in a way, it all starts there in, in, that, in that abusive marriage. Uh, everything I do now is shaped by that, but I, I'm not that person at the same time, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And you talk about how at the start you just wanted to help her and that's what you're continuing to do now. It's it's just you part of who you are. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And we all, and it's it's so important, I think even through the through the pandemic, um, it when we help people, we genuinely know we're making an impact in someone's life it makes such a difference. And I see this, you know, in the charity that I work for, uh, where we, as I mentioned, the community centre and the food outreach, the furniture outreach, I work with a lot of long-term unemployed and long um, and socially isolated people. Uh, and part of what we try and do, as well as our, our public services, is, is to uh, give them employability skills, give them volunteer, really meaningful volunteering experience. And quite often, they're a bit sort of dubious about volunteering um, and, and quite often they 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 don't get out. They they live a very narrow life where really they're, they're on benefits at home. But once they start getting out and helping people and getting involved and and, and actually feel like they're making, they can see they're making a difference. Seeing how they transform as people is is just amazing. It really is. And and we all it's, it's we all get such a kick out of helping people. And so and I guess that shapes my work as well with with uh, male victims of domestic abuse. I do some stuff uh, privately with with male victims of domestic abuse, and you know it, it is a it is a difficult situation because you you think that no one's going to believe you, you you think that the the world is stacked against you. you there is this the whole stigma uh, for male victims of domestic abuse that you know it, people are going to just think you're weak, you know, if you allowed yourself to be knocked about, you know, no true man gets knocked about and, and all of that stuff go, goes around your head you know there's all the uh, the locker room banter of needing a kitchen pass to go out and who wears the trousers and and you know that that's all banter on the one hand but it it creates this sense that that you know men need to be strong and and, and not victims and um i do think that's changing now a, a bit i do think there's more awareness out there but i mean still in the media the way they they portray domestic abuse it's still very much the stories tend to be from from women um, because uh, in order for the national press to report on a story of domestic abuse, they need a secured conviction and men are less likely to secure convictions for a whole bunch of reasons, fearing being believed, fearing not seeing their kids. And so although we know that a third of victims of domestic abuse are men, that's not reflected in the amount of stories that we're seeing in the media. And just while we're there, the, the stories reflecting the the reality in the media, and we, we we know that lots of things can get it blown out of proportion, and and that, that it's really what sells newspapers is what's at the core here, what's important in in the world. So, what is it about the fact that, as you say, one third of men are victims that is not getting out there, that that is not being covered? We're not we're not hearing the stories. Um, I think uh, you do, unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I 
loathe the Daily Mail and the Sun with an absolute passion. Um, but they will report, funnily enough, on, on stories of male victims of domestic abuse. Uh, and to me, and it, it sounds terribly judgmental, the more intelligent newspapers uh, won't. Uh, and that may be a leaning of, 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 of the editorial and, and, and what they want in, in their papers and, and who they're trying to reach out to, I suppose. Um, the conviction thing is a problem. Men generally won't secure convictions, so national press won't report on them for legal reasons, and that that's understandable. Um, I think hearing more stories, hearing more about the, the challenges that men are facing is, is really important. I think the other thing we have to bear in mind, and, and I think this is where uh, there's a very misleading um, portrayal of domestic abuse, two-thirds female, that, this is with the best of the statistics that we have, and, and this, these stats are hotly disputed between male and female groups. But if we say that two-thirds of uh, victims of domestic abuse are female and a third are male, well, some of those females and some of those males will be male on male and female on female. And we know that domestic abuse is, is rife in the LGBT community. Um, some of those will, will, will be a man and a woman in a relationship that's very healthy, but it's their child that's abusing them. But obviously they, the man is a victim and the female is a victim uh, as loving parents. And so the breakdown of those stats is, is harder to define. But we need we need to bear in mind all faces of domestic abuse, sibling abuse, for example. Uh, we need to understand that, yes, if, if after a football match, um, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of awareness about, you know, um, domestic abuse going up that that may be true but 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 it, it may be true of, of, of both genders uh, it may be true in the LGBT community so let, let's portray that as well so that we're we're open to it you know I know um, a mum she's a single mum and she was being knocked about by her teenage daughters um, there's never been a man on the scene there she she uh, adopted them when they were babies um, so you can't really blame the patriarchy in, in that sense, but she feels like a failed parent. She's not a failed parent at all. It's very common, but we don't think it's common because no one's talking about it. So for me, I'm passionate about this broader discussion, not to the detriment of female victims in, in the uh, pot for funding, the pot to support uh, victims of domestic abuse is inadequate anyway. Um, but I, I think we need this broader discussion. So in our workplaces, we can best support our colleagues um in our communities so parents don't feel like failed parents they feel like they're normal and actually we can have some open discussions about why is this on the, has it always been on the rise or is it just being reported more we don't really know is the honest is the honest answer so that's what i'm passionate about this, this broader discussion and really saying well look whatever the data says it's okay so for example in australia the data seems to suggest that more uh, more children are killed by their mothers than their fathers. Now, that is uh, a controversial thing to say. I didn't believe that when I first read it, but I read about it in a couple of different sources that seem to suggest that's the case. But if that's the case, rather than arguing about it, let's say, OK, well, why might this be happening? Is this linked to postnatal depression? Uh, there's the other condition, isn't there? Is it purple psychosis that... That, that can uh, cause huge problems. But let, let, let's not try and um, think about our own agenda. Let's just look at the data and have an open conversation that as men and women, let's try and come together and, and, and prevent prevent domestic abuse, prevent uh, domestic homicide, and, and let's get rid of our agendas. And that, that, that's something I'm passionate about. 
it's so difficult, isn't it, to understand how big a, an issue it is and unless you've got the data to support it. And as you say, people aren't stepping forward. You're not knowing exactly what the situations are and then they're not pressing charges. And so to have these broader discussions, what's it going to take to, to get it out there? It's, it's like that whenever there's a... A, a, almost a, a fame or celebrity moment where this something happens then it gets talked about but other than that it just goes below the radar yeah and I think that's true and you know obviously we've had um, jo Johnny Depp uh, and the Amber Heard case I mean my, my own reading of that for what it's worth is that when you look at the evidence it, it seemed like a fairly mutually dysfunctional relationship when you were they were pretty nasty to each other uh, was one more the aggressor than the other? I, I wasn't, you know, who, who's to know? But to me, you know, and I, and I know of a couple where they beat each other up. Um, and, you know, that's not a healthy relationship. Is it an abusive relationship? Is it a mutually? It, it gets complicated. Um, the th you know, and even with the Caroline Flack, you know, the, the police, you know, they have a responsibility. If, if there is an, a, a witness of an assault, they have to, they have to, process that and 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 and, and, process, and and carry through that process. They're only doing their job. So these these stories bring it to light. Um, but I think we need we need conversations in the workplace. So for example, how many employees have actually seen what the domestic abuse policy is? How many employees have actually had a conversation with their line managers? Hey, so do we have a policy? If so, what's in it? If so, does that work for us as an organization? What happens if there are allegations? What you know all of this stuff, it just needs to be talked about. And I think it is coming. You know, the, the more that we are opening up about mental health and there's this view that it's okay to open up about mental health, then the more that some of the other stuff that causes mental health issues will come to light and, and domestic abuse, without a shadow of a doubt, has an impact on your mental health as, as someone I can, I can definitely vouch for that. So I think it, it, it takes it takes a willingness to have that conversation, a desire to have that conversation uh, an understanding of, of, of how prevalent domestic abuse is, but we misunderstand so much of it. Yeah, and I guess because that everyone's been working from home for the last year or so, or not everyone, but a majority of, a lot of these cases would have been missed as well, because where if you had gone into the workplace and had a conversation and someone had spotted that you didn't look okay, then that would have happened. But the fact that people have been able to show up on Zoom and take the camera off and just say, sorry, kids are in the background or something, lots yeah. has gone unnoticed. And it's amazing how quickly domestic abuse can just feel very normal and then it's not abuse anymore. That's how it feels if you're on the receiving end. It's just kind of like normal life. You justify it. You become your partner's greatest defender and excuse maker. Um, psychologically, if you're not getting that challenge or that that outside uh, contact with, with with other trusted people, you, you're far less likely to divulge to to anyone that you're caught in abuse. It's a much more scary place to be, um, and it's amazing just how much you just get locked into your your own habits. You know, I often talk about in some of the sort of the critical uh, decision making that that uh, stuff that I do with with business leaders. You know, some of the dilemmas, the mental dilemmas that you get involved with. So even if you you know it's bad, you know you, you know you're in a difficult relationship. You, you you can see what's going on. This tension between well, when do I give up and walk away if I even can, and how long do I keep going for? being able to navigate that tension, you know, and that spills over, of course, into other areas of our life, whether the world encourages us to persevere and dig deep uh, at all costs, 
but that you know unchecked perseverance is is dangerous and, and damaging and at what point do we choose to pull the plug and invest our energies elsewhere but for many victims of domestic abuse one of the problems is at, even if you wake up and smell the coffee and you think actually you know i i need th th this is wrong and i am taking action it, it's so difficult to make a bold decision when for so long you've been living in fear and lockdown and, and you're in survival mode. So you're doing whatever it takes to survive. You, you'd compromise your own integrity if you had to, because it's all about creating stability and, and peace. And, 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 and when you live in chaos, all you want is a boring, stable life where everyone just gets on okay. And if that's what you've craved and worked and striven for and str strive for, then making a bold decision that requires huge change, you're just very ill-equipped to do that. If, if once upon a time, if you could have done it after years of abuse of, of, of sort of uh, coping with that, you are less likely to be able to make that, that bold decision. And so, yeah, if, if you are in lockdown at home, you're not getting out, then it is very tough for people both to open up or, or, or take any kind of action that they need to. And when did you become decisive, Andrew? Um, there wasn't there wasn't a, a one moment where I became decisive. Um, I sometimes share uh, in 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 the stuff that I do around decision making. So when um, I I didn't take action to leave, um, I was kicked out. I didn't want to be kicked out. Um, the violence was getting worse. I agreed to go, uh, and and I believed, still believed, I was hoping. You know, I didn't want to give up on this. I'd put so much into my marriage, and I hoped that. In, in not living together, that the, there'd be a reset button in some way. And I was going to marriage guidance with her and I was making sure there's enough money in the bank account. I was being a very good boy and, and doing everything that I, a, good, a good husband would do if he wanted his relationship to repair. Um, but then a couple of months passed and I was like, actually, I quite like my new life. Like it wasn't been what I'd have chosen, but I, I don't come home frightened anymore. I don't come home wondering what's waiting for me. You know, I'd always know if it was going to be really, really bad, because I'd, I'd parked my car, um, we were living in France at the time, and as I walked around the corner to the house, if if I was walking into a war zone, the dog would be sitting there at the window with its ears flat to its head and its shoulders drooped. But if nothing was going on and it, no, there was no storm, his ears would be pointing up, he'd be quite happy to see me. So if ever I saw the dog with the ears flat, I was like, oh no, what's happened? What's happened? You are joking me. So to not come home to that, to not wonder what I was, you know, what, what version of dog I was going to come home to as the indicator of, of good or bad was, was great. And I started to think actually, you know, maybe I can, you know, I hate my job. Maybe I can do some, I started to have ideas. I was like thinking maybe I'll buy a hotel. I'd be, I'd be a rotten hotel manager, I'm sure. But because part of my thinking was how hard can it be to run a hotel, but obviously quite difficult. And um, they, they were great ideas, but they were ideas. The first time I had ideas in years, and then my wife suddenly decided she wanted me back and uh, I could go back home now and move back in as long as I went to counselling. And, and suddenly I was back into this turmoil. What do I do? Do I do I go back to what I know? Do I batten down my hatches and just do what everyone would expect me to do? Or do I play bold and, and carry on and buy a hotel or, or not and create a new life? And I, I was in massive turmoil. I did not know what I was going to do and I was like, oh, I'll go to the mountains for my moments of epiphany. I went to the mountains for a few days. That didn't help. And I was searching for this light bulb moment and realized actually, you know, 
when you are faced with a difficult decision where the stakes are high, where you've got perhaps a bolder option and a safer option, or an option that, that you know well and an option that you don't know well, um, it's there's always going to be some turmoil. But I realized actually the first thing is you've got to work out how much time you have to make your decision. Because sometimes you think you don't have much time. There's just people goading you into making a decision to suit their agenda. And I figured, actually, I've got time to make this. I don't need to go straight back. Um, my daughters are, by this point, we're used to the coming to daddy's every other weekend. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, I desperately wanted to live with them every day again. But I was like, actually, I'm going to take some time over this. And the second key question is, well, what information do I need? What key data do I need to help me in my decision? And how will I acquire that data? And it became very clear to me that the two game-changing pieces of data was, was my wife going to take her anger seriously? And we were, you know, and, and, and I would need to broach this with her whilst I wasn't living with her. And was she going to stop lying? Because I realized that was something that's really bothering me now. I sort of turned a blind eye to it before. And so when I broached these in marriage counseling, um, she stormed out in tears, uh, which I felt wasn't the best start. But, you know, I thought we'll give this some time. But as the month or two passed, it was clear that, that there was not going to be any progress made. And so logically, as much as it broke my heart, not to move back and live with my daughters every day. Um, that that was the information I needed. And then there's a decision. You have to make a decision. Do you walk away from the pool, the swimming pool, and, and, and make it, if you see it as standing by the side of a pool, do you walk away and play it safe? And, and maybe the pool won't open up to you again. Do you stay on the sides because you need more time, but then be clear about what time? Or do you ease your way into that pool and, 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 and get away and swim? You know? So for me, I, I decided that there wasn't going to be change. I could see that from the information that I had, it was very clear. So I, I got into the pool and I, and, I, and I moved on. But that whole turmoil that I went through taught me a lot about decision-making. And once I'd made that decision, it was amazing then how actually it wasn't, it was still really tough. Uh, the main thing was my daughters, that, that was the hardest thing. But actually having made a big, bold decision, making other big, bold decisions became a lot easier and being able to do that well. And, and I would say as a, as a caveat to that, that some people think when it comes to critical decision-making that we're gonna explore how to make very quick decisions uh, and use the guts, for example, it's very trendy, isn't it, to act with your guts, but your guts is a sum of your biases and prejudices and the things that you've experienced. And the things that you've experienced may not actually be what happened, they're just how you remember them. So your gut can be hopelessly flawed so my view of my gut instinct is it it can give me a, an indicator of a possible direction, but that direction needs to be tested. Uh, you need quality data. Uh, and, and actually, yes, if I decide, am I going to clean my teeth or not? That's not a complicated decision. I can decide that straight away. Uh, yes, because I don't want rotten teeth. Uh, but for the complex decisions, actually going in with, with a gut, just a gut feel, is is not something that that I would do because your your gut is is a a huge gamble, um, and and you need your data anyway. Yeah, it's it's fascinating and it's really interesting to see how even though all of that was going on, you still wanted it to be resolved. You wanted to be back together, and was that partly because of of your daughters, or was it just was the whole dynamic, the whole family dynamic? Well, you know, so another dilemma. That, that I mentioned earlier about the never giving up and wake up and smell the coffee. I was, I'm very tenacious as a person. I grew up proper me. And, you know, you, you think about, um, 
think about Peter Rabbit on um, on the BBC. I don't know if you watch the Peter Rabbit series, but his motto is a good rabbit never gives up. Um, and there's so much around about not giving up and, and grit and digging in deep. And, and Winston Churchill's uh, um, success is going from one failure to the next without any loft of enthusiasm. Um, and, and that's all fine. We love a Winston Churchill quote, but that that was so in me. I, I, I always, always hung in there to the end. While everyone else had jumped off the ship, I'd still be clinging to the mast, convinced that that ship could float if everyone just stayed on it and helped bail the water out. And so part of why I still wanted it to work was that's just me. I At that point in my life, uh, I did not believe in giving up. Um, and then when you try and try at something and you have a hope that something's going to happen, then you fall foul of the, the narrative bias where you instinctively try and find evidence to fit your hope, to fit, to, to give you this, the, the, there are signs out there. And anything, even if it's a flimsy sign to you, it's this bright light because you want it to work. And any evidence that might come to light that would suggest that the hope isn't going to happen, you'll twist it so it becomes a bright light or you'll discard it or ignore it if you can't twist it in any way. And so some of the signs at the very end, you know, I remember it was before uh, I'd been kicked out, but I remember my wife being violent towards me. And this was where I was beginning to wake up and think, actually, is this right or is this wrong? And, And I remember justifying it by saying, but Andrew, this is the south of France. It's 42 degrees today. Of course, you, you, there were many partners. You, you can't count that. Can't count that as an attack. It's too hot. Can't count that. And so that, that's how the narrative bias can work in that, in that in, instance. And of course, it affects us in, in all areas of our life. So I think, I think part of why I wanted it to work out, yes, of course, it was my daughter's. Um, and, and that broke my heart, not being able to live with them on a daily basis again. And I suspected that there could be some difficulties in the family courts um, and and you're playing this treading on eggshells as 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 a dad, just trying to keep the peace at all costs so that the the contact isn't messed about. Um, but some of it, like I say, was was what was in me of of not wanting to give up. And and now, of course, I have a much healthier relationship with perseverance. Um, and I talk about pulling the plug rather than giving up. Sometimes you know, you, you need to uh, let out the soapy, uh, lukewarm water. And letting the hot, clean water if you want a, a nice, clean bath. And there's nothing wrong with pulling the plug. Uh, I think the words uh, quitting and never and sort of giving up, uh, they don't have helpful connotations. So when I'm talking to my kids, we talk about changing direction, pulling the plug, which is which is a better way of, of approaching that question of where I'm just going to actually take my energy and put it somewhere else. That's really what you're doing. You're not giving up the violin. If you're then going to go and do something different, you might be stopping practicing the violin so you can start doing something else. So just to give some context, how long ago was all this, Andrew? Well, and it's the reason why I can talk freely about it now for two reasons. One, emotionally, I can talk freely about it. And two, there's because my daughters are the age that they're at now, there's no family court nonsense. So it's why I didn't talk about it before and I do talk about it now. So it happened. I was in that relationship from 1998 through till 2009. Um, that was the official uh, divorce. We split We uh, in 2007. The divorce came through in 2009. So sort of together, I, I suppose, eight or nine years um, and 
then sort of in that breakup, getting the divorce sorted for about a year, um, which isn't unusual. So that's kind of the context. Um, and I'd always wondered whether I would talk about it. Um, but then family court stuff kicked off as it always does for uh, it, where, where you have a, an abusive person and then there's kids involved and a divorce involved, you're going to have trouble. You're just going to have trouble. You can't cooperate. You can't co-parent. You can't reason with an abusive person. And I would just, you know, make the point, you know, I know plenty of women who have a terrible time at the family courts because they are trying to sort things out with an abusive man. And I know guys who've had a terrible time at the family courts too. So I think, you know, at the family courts, I mean, that's a whole nother, that's another podcast, uh, you know, about, the, the complexities about about the inadequacies of the family court system. Um, there are good people, good mums and dads who just get ruined by the family courts, financially ruined, emotionally ruined, and and I've had some big battles that have been so draining. It's 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 just yeah, it's hard to even begin to describe uh, how painful a process the family courts currently are. Um, so that's another thing that that we we need to look at. We need to overhaul. We need to rethink how we work with people where there is domestic abuse. And what about allegations of domestic abuse? I mean, my uh, now ex-wife, when we were going through the family courts, I, I didn't mention the domestic abuse because I hadn't secured a conviction. So why would I mention it? But my ex-wife requested a screening court uh, all full of all kinds of unsubstantiated allegations, which, of course, she knew she couldn't prove because, well, they didn't happen. But... They're there. They're on the paperwork. I'm in a courtroom full of women and, and female barristers and a female judge. And so uh, the request for a, a screen was was, was a nonsense and, and was not granted. But what you've got in the family courts, because nobody gets um, punished for lying. If if you knowingly lie in court and I can prove it, it doesn't. You won't get punished in a family court of law. There's no perjury or anything like that. So it, it means that if you know abusive people will stoop as low as they have to to get their own way because they can and so it means that the family courts are incredibly messy uh the the independent organizations that advise the judges uh don't have much time to look at each case so it's more of a box ticking exercise and it's very random and it's a bit of a lottery so when people ring me often uh, guys in the family court system they've come out of the abusive relationship can i help them well the only help i can offer is get a good lawyer that's very local to the courthouse. They at least know the system. And after that, it's a lottery. So start praying. Well, I think you've illustrated exactly why there's so much underreporting going on because you know the actual resolutions are are tough and going forward. And, and hearing what you've you've shared and and saying that it has shaped you into the person that you now are, and I guess in some respects you wouldn't change any of that because of who you are now and what you're doing. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And um, what well, you know, yeah, no, I absolutely wouldn't. And, and also, I'm happy, you know, I'm, you, you, once you start getting into changing history, then I might not have met my wife, uh, who's just brilliant. Um, and I wouldn't have had my daughters. And, you know, so I'm not one to get into trying to alter history. History has happened. Uh, there's a lot of good that's, that's come from it. Um, and they're really tough things. And, and, and I think there doesn't always have to be a reason for everything that's ever happened in the world. Sometimes just bad stuff happens and there's no particular meaning. There's no particular lesson. And you just have to write it off as a bad thing, a bad experience. 
Um, and maybe the only good thing is that it helps you to appreciate the really good stuff. And, and that's all that can be taken from it. But, you know, if that is, then, 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 then move on. And um, yeah, there, there was a time, you know, when, when I first came out of the abusive relationship and uh, I was determined in all future romantic liaisons that I, you know, if, if ever it got serious, there would be a prenup. You know, I was not going to be messed around. You know, I, I would absolutely ensure that any future wife would 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 sign a prenup. And I, I was quite bitter, I suppose. But then I've got lovely sisters. I've got a lovely mum. Uh, I had, uh, although they weren't the ones long term, I, I met a couple of really nice uh, women who were wonderful and lovely. We dated. It didn't work out. And I just like, why am I being so bitter? The only person that's going to, you know, I'm going to end up, hurting other people and being a mess myself. And so it was nice to kind of, I don't know what point it was now looking back where I just thought, you know what, all the stuff that's happened is gone. Let's move on. You know, just because one person was abusive, most most people, when I believe this, are actually all right. Most people are all right. And then you get a few bad ones and, 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 and usually they've got a whole load of stuff that's making them a bit rotten. And it might not be for you to support them. It might be for someone else, but most people are good, and I think we have to work with that as our as our mantra. So, with that in mind, and with the four hats that you're currently wearing, what's coming up next? Oh, blind! What is coming up next? Um, I've got a busy few months on all fronts. Um, always busy with the, the kids. Is just the kids, just constantly growing up and and testing and 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 trying to push the boundaries, but having lots of fun as well um i think do you know what i tell you what the most exciting thing i've got coming up actually so um i'm doing some work with kafkas uh, later this year so um so i've got leadership stuff coming up i, I do i'm doing sort of webinars uh, and, and online events like i say for the fsb iod um, and various associations institutions and that's all great it's really, really it's more than great it's a it's a privilege and it's lots of fun uh, the stuff I do with the charity is great. Seeing the community centre taking off, we're doing. Uh, I'm sort of taking a lead on some of the money mentoring stuff there because local debt's a huge problem. But actually, later this year, the event with Kafkas will be absolutely. I can't wait to do that. So, because of my experiences in the family courts and my experiences in domestic violence, I'm doing some work with their uh, senior uh, management teams uh, around domestic violence, parental alienation. And what is it like going through the family courts at the moment? Um, and what a privilege to be able to do that training. You know, I just, I, I can't wait to do that. And they're an organisation I've always wanted to work with because a lot, Kafkasu, I don't know if you, do you know who Kafkas are? No. Sorry, I, but so Kafkas, they are the independent uh, social workers that work in the family courts and they advise the judges what to do. So sometimes the judges won't always do what Kafkas says, but generally they do. So if, Kafkas think that, that you're the problem as a mum because you're not letting blokey see, see kids, then you've got a real problem. You, the blokey will see kids if Kafkas, if that's what. They have a lot of power in the family courts. Um, and unfortunately for Kafkas, they have a lot of very good caseworkers and, and a lot of caseworkers who are perhaps not quite so competent. Uh, and they get a really bad press generally um, because they're always going to upset someone, whatever they decide to do. So being able to work with them uh, being able to do some training with them uh, and sharing of, of kind of my experience in the family courts, which are very mixed. I've got very mixed experiences of Kafkas. Um, being able to constructively work through how to how to improve their offering uh, and what they do 
uh, is an amazing privilege. I, is the thing I'm most excited about doing later this year. That sounds wonderful. And it sounds like the opportunity for you to voice your experiences and, and to have some effect there in, in changing things and in changing the way that, that people are filtering the information that they're receiving and, and potentially making the wrong decisions, making, well, not necessarily the wrong decisions, but making uninformed decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. And trying to, yeah, no, exactly that. And I think the, the whole aspect of parental alienation where uh, is, is a hugely, hugely divisive subject where different lobbying groups, uh, there's just such a refusal to accept anybody else's opinion. That and so my, my view on parental alienation is it's quite, it's quite blurred, it's quite grey, it, it, it's a very complicated issue. I've, I've fought in court as someone that was uh, alienated from my daughters. I then won custody of my daughters. I was then back in the courts being accused of parental alienation, um, of which it took. I thought it'd be a breeze to to disprove, but it was actually a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, and you know, there are some parents who deliberately try and squeeze the child, squeeze the other parent out of the child's life by colouring that child's view by messing around contact. There are some parents that, that do that deliberately, but it's through ignorance and they can be coached. Some parents do it deliberately and can't be coached. And some parents, and this is a situation I found myself in, you, you, you end up being put in so many awkward and difficult positions that parenting neutrally becomes almost impossible. And so you might get your knuckles wrapped at court for not parenting neutrally, but you put the situation in front of the court and say, what would you have done? And they won't have any answers, but they'll continue to wrap your knuckles and so I'm quite passionate that this whole area of parental alienation, that we we understand the complexities behind it, because there are some really good parents out there who are in impossible situations where they have to try and parent neutrally somehow. Yeah, there's no guidebook for this, is there? It's, it's one of those ways of, of living that you just have to do your best with the tools you have at the time. And, and But essentially, if you've got someone like you who's championing for change to be made and, and make it a lot easier than it, it's you know it's your voice that's going to get heard so that's fantastic which is why you are speaking on these topics thank you yeah and it's a, it's a great pleasure and um yeah thank you for having me on your podcast as well oh it's been an absolute pleasure to explore this andrew how would people get in contact with you they've heard what you've had to say and they want to speak to you um well if they want to speak to me, uh, just come uh, via my website, www.andrewpain.co.uk. Remember that pain is spelled P-A-I-N, as in pain in the neck. Um, and so uh, that's probably the best way. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. There aren't too many Andrew Paynes with that spelling of pain, P-A-I-N. Anybody that wants to find out more about uh, domestic violence, domestic, you know, that sort of kind of gender unity, male struggle. I've got my TEDx talk on YouTube if they just type in Andrew Payne TEDx, that, that will come up. There's um, a 12-minute talk on domestic violence. But yeah, if you want to get in contact, come through the website. There's a, a way that you can book a call if you want to and find out more. Perfect. Well, all of those links will go into the show notes, particularly the TEDx, because it's well worth watching and to get an understanding of, of probably a more, a more in-depth version of what we've talked about here. And so, yeah. Thank you, Andrew. It's been an absolute privilege. Do you have some final words for the audience? I think probably 
the words I would have for the audience is, and I know it's really uh, straightforward on the one hand, but just make sure you are checking in with those around you. Are they really okay? Because at the moment, life is really tough. And I know from my own perspective as well, when, when you yourself are just trying to survive, your head can go down, you can look very inwardly um, and be very focused on self and, and self-care, which of course is important. But just that kind of reaching out to people is, is just so important at the moment, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's the a guy across the road who you think's a bit weird uh, anyway, or, or whether it's just whatever it is, just that that we are trying to reach out to people we're trying to be kind to people, people in the workplace. I think more than ever, we've, we've got to try to look out for each other and open up conversations about how are people actually doing. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.